This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Guy Hammond of Strength in Weakness Ministries hosted a track called Cultural Issues and Disciple Making. Here's today's track session from Strength in Weakness Ministries. This particular track session was delivered by Marcus D. Carvello, who has recently published through discipleship.org a free ebook by the name of the session. It's called Untangling Addiction, and you can download this at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Discipleship.org slash ebooks. Um, so grateful to be here this morning and uh, really encouraged by everybody that's here. Uh, today, um, just seeing what Bobby's leadership has done, bringing everybody together. I'm so excited to be a part of this. This morning's title is Untangling Addiction with Jesus Style Discipleship. Just briefly, a little bit about what I do. It's important that you, you know my credentials and what I do on a day to day. I'm the chief medical officer of five addiction hospitals in the United States. Um, that deal with any type of addiction, whether it's heroin, alcohol, sexual, behavioral, gambling. Um, I'm also the president and founder of the Center for a Healthy Mind, which is two psychiatric practices in Jacksonville, Florida, that deal with addiction-related issues and behavioral health, bipolar disorder, depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, ADHD. Um, I'm also the founder of UntangleAddiction.com, which is a website that I've created to provide webinars, podcasts, videos, for families, for people who are struggling with addiction, in order to help them become unstuck and focused spiritually. Um, I'm also a board-certified physician uh, with the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and a member of the American Board of Medical Specialties. I also um, lead Lighthouse Recovery, which is a Celebrate Recovery-like program at the Jacksonville Church of Christ where we help people become unstuck and back into their lives. And I also uh, run a men's purity group for sexual addiction at the Jacksonville Church of Christ. So the purpose of this presentation is to bring education, to bring awareness, to allow you and aid you with the ability to communicate to people in your lives, in your churches, what is addiction? To be able to understand what is going on in their brain from a neuroscience perspective and also the spiritual battle that they face. It's also for friends and loved ones. In this room, if I could just get a show of hands, does anybody in this room know anyone who struggles with some form of addiction? If you can raise your hands. Okay. Does anyone here know anyone who struggles with sexual addiction? Please raise your hands. Does anyone here know anyone who struggles with addiction to prescription pain pills or benzodiazepines, Valium, Xanax, Ativan? Okay. Does anybody in this room know anyone who has died from an accidental overdose from pain pills? Please look around the room. Please put your hands up. Please look around the room. Okay. About 10 years ago, no hands would go up. And we'll touch, we'll touch on that and why. But this is commonplace now. People are dying in the United States accidentally. Ages 19 to 35, gone because of a crisis that's going on, an epidemic in our country. Often people ask me, 
Dr. DiCarvalho, what is addiction? Can you explain it to me? I want to teach members of my church. I want, to, I want to understand what's going on with my child. What is addiction? The question is, we have to understand where does addiction begin? Does it begin with the wife who finds thousands of pornographic images on her husband's hard drive? Or the family hard drive and realizes he's living a double life? Does it begin when the adult porn industry now has targeted females, teenage girls, to make videos that are specific for girls because they know this is an industry they can tap in and make millions of dollars. An industry that makes more than Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Yahoo, all combined. One in three women, one in three people who are addicted to pornography in their teenage years is female. Does it begin when the individual is facing incarceration for multiple DUIs and his family is just done? They don't know where to go, how to get help. And I'm talking about, these are examples of members in our churches. Does it begin when a family member goes to the front door and realizes the cars are being towed because somebody squandered all of their savings because of a gambling addiction? Does it begin after years and years of a marriage who's been facing these addictions and there's this codependency amongst the two, 30 years. And she may have identified as the victim and he identifies as the perpetrator. And because of that identification, there's this codependency and that's what keeps them together. And then after 30 years, they're done. And the answer is divorce. Does it begin with gaming? And I'm not talking about teens, guys. I'm talking about the guys that come home and they've had a stressful day And they just unplug themselves from their family, from their marriage, and they go in a room and they play video games all night long. And this is a reality. It almost sounds funny, but this is real. And the wife just does not want to go there. And she just lets him. He needs his time. But there's no leadership. There's no discipleship from father to child. It's well, we we know this really well in psychiatry that all these addictions develop comorbid psychiatric issues like anxiety and depression, body image issues food-related issues, whether you restrict your food or you binge at night. Another addiction. Or does it begin when the CDC labels the opioid problem an epidemic in the United States? What are epidemics? The Ebola virus. 67,000 people last year. We're looking at almost 100,000 in 2017. No disease, car accidents, nothing kills more people in the United States than accidentally overdosing from opioids. No disease. I mean, this is, this is powerful stuff as far as deaths, guys. No disease, heart attacks, car accidents, suicide. Nothing kills more people than somebody taking some pills at night, going to bed, and not waking up the next morning. The president declares the opioid epidemic a national health crisis. In order to even approach where does addiction begin, we have to understand what is happening in the brain. We have evolved as human beings to experience pleasure that think about, of things that keep us alive. We eat a meal. We feel good. We sleep. We feel good. We have sex. We feel good. And yes, somebody had to have sex for us to be here, right? We feel good. Why? 
because a chemical called dopamine. And when dopamine is released, we feel reward. We have been designed to need reward in order to reciprocate certain behaviors that allow us to evolve as human beings, a beautiful design created by God. And dopamine in the media has, you know, a lot of attention. It's the chemical that produces reward. It's the chemical that causes addiction. But it has a deeper role than this. And a lot of people are not talking about this. But when dopamine is released, it lays down new neurons in the brain, new neural networks all over the brain. And these neurons are responsible for what you put in your mouth, the things you see, the behaviors associated, the feelings associated with the music that was on, everything that's involved in it. You go out to a meal with your wife and there's good ambiance, there's good music, there's good food, and we love all that. And that is stored in neurons, special neurons that are new and fresh and created in order for you to want to recreate that moment. Honey, let's go back out to that restaurant. I love that place. I love doing that. We want to create things that recreate things that make us feel good. And dopamine is responsible for the laying down of these new neurons. We say the brain is plastic. It is always changing shape. It used to be thought that, you know, that this neuroplasticity only happened um, up until three years of age. But we know this is not true. This is happening out through our entire lives. The brain is plastic. But here's the problem. When you introduce drugs like Percocet, Lortab, Norco, Hydrocodone, Xanax, Valium. Just by the way, Xanax, Valium, Ambien, they're all benzodiazepines. They're just powdered alcohol. In psychiatry and addiction, we call them the best dry gin martinis in town. They are just alcohol. When you take one, it suppresses your anxiety. It, it, it turns off an area in your brain that uh, allows you to be emotionally aware, and that's why it shuts things down, and you can become addicted to it. Drugs, alcohol, pornography food. When you introduce these things to the brain, they will produce a hundred times, maybe even a thousand times more dopamine than food, sleep, and even sex. And when that happens, it lays down new neural networks specific for drugs, alcohol, porn, porn. How am I going to hide it? Where am I going to do it? How am I, do I, I need to get an an extra cell phone because I'm all the, on all these dating websites. How am I going to hide my car when I go to an adult porn uh, uh, store, uh, bookstore? All of those things are laid down in that neural network and it produces tons of dopamine. And then the brain believes it needs drugs, alcohol, porn, or food to survive like food or sleep. And the brain becomes hijacked. The brain only knows what is producing more dopamine because it's about survival. The brain becomes hijacked to believe it needs porn, drugs, and alcohol to survive, like food or sleep, due to the neuroplastic changes. New neurons are being laid down in the brain that are specific for these things. If we look at the dopamine levels for food, Sorry if you can't really see this here, but this is how much dopamine is released when you, when you eat a meal, okay? This is how much dopamine is released when you have sex, a little bit more, just doubled from food. When you introduce drugs, morphine, opioids, it goes up and it lingers and it lingers. Cocaine, nicotine, ethanol, big tobacco, they were really smart when they decided to just overwhelm cigarettes with tons of nicotine. Why? Because they knew that you would become addicted and your brain would believe you needed to survive. Nicotine is the, most, the hardest thing, the most addictive. Out of 100 people, 
surveyed. If you smoke one cigarette, the chances of you developing a full-blown nicotine addiction, an addiction to cigarettes, for 20 years plus, you are smoking a pack a day. From one cigarette, the percentage of people is 69%. Is that because it's cool to smoke? Is that because it's fun to smoke, it feels good? No, something is going on in the brain. Crystal meth, a thousand times more dopamine. What I'm trying to drive home with you is that when the dopamine goes up that powerfully, that's how many more neurons are laid down that are specific for the drug you've done, for the lies, for the life you're living, for the people you're involved with. All of that is laid down. In pornography, this is hard to see here, but in the background of this, of this green line are all the other lines that I just showed you with cocaine and all that, and food and, and sex. The thing about pornography that's so devastating is that there is no drug. If an individual goes into his house and he hides from his wife, or female, I know I say his, but or female, hides from his wife and participates in sexual impurity, and they do it, say, at 9 a.m. in the morning, and they're done. The amount of dopamine that has been increased and that will linger in their system throughout the entire day is going to be laying down new neurons specific for those lies, for all of those things laying down new neural fibers specific for the pornography. It's so much more damaging than just drug addiction. So what is neuroplasticity? It is the formation of new neural pathways through repetitive behaviors which release dopamine. Your brain will choose the pathway that produces more dopamine, more reward. So follow me with this story. Imagine yourself, you're a young child, and you're given a tricycle. And you get on that tricycle, and you try to ride it, and you don't really have the strength for it, but you start pedaling, and little by little, you got the strength, and you're riding it away. And then your parents give you some training wheels. And then you go to a five-speed, a ten-speed, the banana seed Schwinn, and you're driving all around town and jumping curbs, and you're awesome at it, and you're a young teen. Thirty years go by, twenty years and you don't ride a bike. You have a career. You're, you're involved in, in your family's life. You're not riding bicycles all around. But you guys go on a, on a trip, and there is a, a bike tour on this trip together at the hotel. And they lay out all the bikes there, and you're walking up to the bike, and you're like, I haven't ridden a bike in 20 years. And your kids are jumping on them, just riding off, and you get on, on the bike, you sit on there, and you kind of get comfortable, and you start pedaling, and gone. You haven't missed a beat. Many of us say, well, that's muscle memory. There's no such thing as muscle memory. There's th that, that is not real. It's neuroplasticity. It's neurons that fire from the brain, memories of all that riding, turning and moving, firing on muscles, moving in certain positions. Neuroplasticity, just for a bicycle. This is neuroplasticity here. From left to right, imagine... These are neurons that are laid down. Somebody starts watching pornography or starts doing opioids or starts doing Valium or a food addiction, gambling. And as they start releasing more dopamine, it starts creating more neurons that start connecting and laying down networks, and this is what you're left with. Very, very specific. Memory, motion, muscle memory. Everything is laid down there. In psychiatry, we look at the biological, the psychological, and the social. What is addiction? Biologically, what does your DNA say? Did your parents struggle with alcoholism? Is this something that in your genes that you may have the propensity to happen to you? Or biologically, is there a physician who is actively prescribing you 
anything you want. Opioids, prescription benzodiazepines, anything you want. Or you have an injury, you hurt your back, something bad happened, and they put you on Percocet or Lortab. But when they put you on Percocet or Lortab, they should have given you like an eight-day supply, but they've given you a 30-day supply with four times a day and two refills. Biologically, what happened to you? Psychologically, what happened in your development? Were you abused sexually? Did you have parents in your life? Did you have a mother, a father? Were they spiritually minded? Did they pour into you? Were you brought up in the foster care system? And now as an adult, you have learned how to cope with all the hurt and all the pain. And you found that taking some pain pills, going to porn, benzos, Valium, food, all of that suppresses all the pain. Because guys, it's not the sex of pornography. And it's not the high of opioids. But it is the relief from the pain that for so long we have struggled with. Socially, what is your life today? Who's your social network? Who are the people in your life? Are you living a double life in your church? You go to church at midweek, you go to church on Sunday, you're involved in groups, but you have a whole other network of friends that anything goes. They may not even know you're a Christian. Socially, what is going on in your life? Socially, what's going on with your finances, the stresses of your life? Where's your marriage? Are people involved in that? Are you able to pay your taxes? How are you navigating through your children? But you found that doing all these types of things have helped you just escape and somehow navigate through life. But it's catching up with you. So we looked at those three types of individuals. And we said that, well, if these people biologically, psychologically, and socially have these issues, if they do use drugs, if they do get into porn, if they do get into gambling, they are more likely to develop a full-blown addiction. But then that left out use alone. What about the individuals that have the best DNA? Thoroughbreds. What about the individuals that have great parents? My mom and dad were both evangelists. Um, you know, I was involved in the church. I'm, uh, you know, I've been raised in the church. I'm great. Things are awesome. I had the best development. And socially, things are awesome. You're totally involved in your church. Everything is going on. Everything is great financially, everything. We studied those individuals, and we found that just with use alone, they can develop full-blown addictions as well. Nobody can get away from this. The American Society of Addiction Medicine defines addiction as a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. Dysfunction in these circuits. What are we talking about, guys? Dysfunction in these circuits. We're talking about the neuroplasticity. We're talking about new neurons that are laid down, that are just overwhelming the neurons that are there for your survival. Dysfunction in these circuits leads to characteristic, biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations. This is reflected in an individual pathologically pursuing reward and a relief, just relief by substance use and other behaviors. Other behaviors. The American Society of Addiction Medicine, we have defined that sexual addiction is an addiction. It is an addiction. So what I'm going to talk about here, the concept that we're going to talk about here is probably the most important thing that if you're going to walk away from here and carry something with you that you're going to pour into somebody else to try to help them understand and also for yourself understand what is going on in their brain, this is it. And it's called the pleasure-reward pathway. 
From a neuroscience perspective, it's called the mesolimbic dopamine system, okay? <clears throat> we talked about how when you introduce these things in your life, the brain becomes hijacked. And I labeled this area here, and it's hard to see. This says reward right here. This little area, this purple area here, it says reward, okay? So when you introduce an, uh, something into your brain that actually produces tons more dopamine than basic things of survival, it releases all that dopamine, and the brain gets hijacked. I want you to imagine with me a table. And on this table, there are frames. And in each frame is a photo. And it's a photo of something that the moment you look at it, it brings you joy. And imagine next to that photo, there's that little graph of dopamine. And it may be the birth of your child. And you look at it, and you're like, you feel joy. It could be your baptism. And you look at it, and you feel joy. It could be your marriage, and you look at it, and you feel, you feel great, an incredible memory. And then you start looking at porn, or you start doing opioids, and the amount of dopamine that's produced because of that is just skyrocketing. You saw the crystal meth graph. You saw the, the porn graph. And in nothing in comparison to these little blips on things that you have been designed to love and want... And this thing here becomes the most important thing in your life. How am I going to hide this? How am I going to figure out the password? How am I going to erase the, the hard drive? How am I going to get away with my kids not coming down early in the morning and seeing me masturbating? How am I going to hide these cell phones? How am I going to hide the credit cards? How am I going to replenish money in the bank account that I've been gambling with online? Your existence becomes about this. And these three things, bam, 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 nothing. They can't even produce dopamine anymore when you look at them. They are insignificant to you. And your existence becomes about your addiction. And so we ask the question, why is there this incredible permanence? Why does this happen? Just because of this reward? But right next to the, this purple structure here, this yellow dot right here that I've labeled memory, that's called the amygdala. What is the amygdala? The amygdala was designed for when we walk out of a cave thousands of years ago. We walked out and a saber-toothed tiger was coming from the left. You didn't even have to look at the saber-toothed tiger. You just could feel it or hear it. And bam, you jump back in. Fight or flight. Heart rate goes up. Blood pressure goes up. GI system contracts. Just for you to move out of the way. And those people survived. And we moved on. And those that just stood out there that were like, gone. People walk out in the middle of the street. And a car is coming, and bam, they jump back away. And they're like, I don't even know how that happened. I don't even know how. I, I just moved out of the way. Fight or flight. A powerful system of impulsivity, emotion, memory that has been designed thousands of years ago for us to survive. Right next to the area that produces tons of dopamine for you to feel good. Right next to that, along this little line here, that's called the hippocampus. That is all your memories throughout your entire life. If you can visualize a memory right now, first grade, second grade, third grade, a picture, an image, it's stored in that area of the brain. In fact, when people have dementia, the memories that go last are the oldest memories. If you interview a patient with dementia and you say, when were you born? They'll tell you the date, they'll tell you the city, they'll tell you. But if you ask them today's date, no idea. 
first memories go. But the older memories stay forever, and that is the hard drive of your brain. So now imagine your hippocampus, all your memories connected to the amygdala, the most impulsive system you have in your brain designed for you to survive, telling you to wake up in the morning, have a meal, telling you to go to bed, telling you to do all the basic things for survival, connected to an area that could pump out tons of dopamine. Gentleman opens up his computer with full intention to do work, sitting there, pop up. Something sexual in nature, not pornographic, but something sexual in nature. Dopamine starts being released. Fires onto the amygdala. You need that. You want that. You want that to survive. You need that. All the memories in the hippocampus, all the images, all the pornography, everything that he has looked at. And before you know it, one click away. Click. 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 And he is immersed in pornography that will blow your mind. What, are the, what is the pornography we're talking about today? This is the pornography that's out there. How to have sex with your stepsister. How to have sex with your stepbrother. How to have sex with your stepmother. Daddy swapping. All of that out there. Click away. Jading. Hijacking young individuals' brains. Opioids. Doing the same thing. How do I hide it? My doctor cut me off from opioids. He told me that I've been abusing them. Now this person, executive, on the street, buying them. The entire existence becomes about that. When we treat people with addiction-related issues, we ask them, remove everybody on your cell phone, everybody on your cell phone that could be a trigger, that could cause you to go back to that addiction, so that when that text comes up, I mean, or it's blocked, they won't come up anymore. But that's one of the number one reasons why people relapse, is that they see this text and bam, dopamine starts being produced, and it's like they're like a zombie, and before you know it, I don't know what happened. I don't know why I did this. And I've been good for so long. The brain is hijacked. Addiction is a hijacking of the pleasure-reward pathway. So I'm up here speaking, and it sounds like, well, why did Bobby even invite this guy to come talk here? I mean, there's like no hope here. It sounds like it's a done deal. How do we help people in our church? How do we help our children? What do I do for my child who's five, six, who's going to, I mean, he's going to see it. It's not about preventing them from looking at pornography. It's going to happen. And normally it happens accidentally with nine-year-olds. That's, there's a lot of studies out there. It's going to happen. Where is the hope? Well, I'm not telling you here that there is no hope. But what I'm telling you is this. If you are addicted to something that you struggle with on a day-to-day, you will be vulnerable to that addiction for the rest of your life. And if you don't look at it through the lens of humility, that this is the thorn in my side, that this is the thing that will keep me from having a deep relationship with God, that this is the thing that will cause my death, incarceration, the destruction of my marriage, you're lost. You have no chance. You will be vulnerable forever. Why? Because of the neuroplasticity, guys. Those neurons are there forever. They will never go away. Remember the bicycle. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 Paul, in the concepts of neuroplasticity and hope, he had it down. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He understood that through his weakness, his vulnerability gave him strength. He got it. He never, ever moved away from that chapter in his life and said, I'm over that. A lot of people, when they become Christians or people that struggle with addictions, they just want that chapter to be behind them. But that's not true. It is always going to be there. Why? For Jesus' power to be revealed. Vulnerability versus hope. So where is the hope, guys? Where is the hope? So we talked about this area here, the brain reward pathway. Far away from all this drama is this area here. And that's called the frontal lobe. I labeled it judgment here. You can't see it. What is the frontal lobe responsible for? It's responsible for executive decisions. That's from the neuroscience perspective. What does that mean? What are your values? What is important to you? Why did you become a Christian? Why do you want to be sober? What does Jesus teach? Why are you here in this room right now wanting to learn deeper about addiction? When we became Christians, we counted the cost. We made the decision, can I do this? That's not an impulsive decision down in the amygdala. That is not impulsivity. You got to decide if you could carry that cross. That lies in the frontal lobe. Your values, what are, what's important to you? How do you want your children to see you? How do you want to lead your wife? How does a wife want to behave in her home? What is important to you? The hope lies in the frontal lobe. It's responsible for executive decision, right and wrong, your values. It's not impulsive. It's not found in the amygdala. How do we strengthen that? How do we strengthen that area so that we can be led by that? Through neuroplasticity. The same thing that caused your addiction is the same thing that will help you maintain sobriety and maintain your focus on Jesus. The brain is a use-it-or-lose-it system, guys. We identify the old, unhealthy pathways in the brain. What were the triggers? What were the things that caused me to want to look at pornography? What is the underlying ideology, biologically, psychologically, socially? What's going on in my life that is causing me to go down that road? It's not just the sex. It's not just getting high. It's not the alcohol. It's not the gambling. Why do I need this escape? Why do I need this relief? We identify that. And that takes time. But then we establish new healthy neural pathways in the frontal lobe. We create new neuroplastic changes. Just like we did in the brain reward pathway, you can do this right here. And this right here, this whole thing that was left for you in the brain reward pathway, all the addiction, all that garbage, that can go from here to there. But this will never leave. All the images of all the pornography. I went to a talk yesterday, Nate Larkin. If you haven't read anything by him or heard him speak about his, his journey through sexual addiction, it's amazing. He made a statement. He was like, in the 60s, you know, he was looking at all these playboys and porn and all this stuff and he's like images that I can remember 
at this very moment in time. Those images will never go away. So this is left for you, and this is the vulnerability. This is where the humility comes into play. This is where you know that you're a decision away from relapse. Neuroplasticity, allowing for the frontal lobe to guide us to our next decision. Instead of the amygdala dictating and impulsively making your next decision. Paul, you know, this is one of, I mean, for me, this is, this is it right here. Do not conform to the patterns of this world. He got it. In this postmodern era, this time in our lives where anything goes, he understood that there are patterns in this world that people will just jump in and find if they don't have a purpose. But he said, be transformed with the renewing of your mind. What is he talking about? He got it. He knew. He knew that through his relationship with Jesus... He can transform his mind and not be a slave to all that stuff that weighed on him. All that anger, all that hate, everything. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So guys, when the frontal lobe is stronger than the brain reward pathway, and understand this, The brain reward pathway is always strong. It is always charged. The amygdala, the hippocampus, the nucleus accumbens, which is that area of reward, that little circle is always strong. Why? Did you sleep last night? Did you have a meal this morning? Did you get your coffee? You fired that thing up. And everything else that's connected with it, porn, pain pills, alcohol, All of it is in there. It's all charged. It's always strong. You don't even have to do anything. You may be sober, but it's still in there, and it's fired. Why? Because it's about survival. That system was in place for us to be here without even making much effort. Strong, charged. If the frontal lobe is stronger than that, and this takes work. This is daily, guys. This is being in the Word daily. This is being in groups. This is having people in your life. This is relationships. This is discipleship. Every single day that you have to work for this. This is where the hope lies. When this is stronger than this, what is that? Sobriety. It's the only way. Only way to maintain sobriety is daily. Every day. The most important thing to your marriage the most important thing to your life, the most important things to your sobriety, you have to work on it daily. The pleasure-reward pathway is always strong. Why? Because it's designed for your survival. But now, when the frontal lobe drops below the pleasure-reward pathway, why? My priorities, bro. I can't go to that meeting tonight. I've got this job. I've got this deadline. I can't, you know, I I haven't been in the Word. I haven't been praying. I haven't, you know, I just, there's so many things going on. My family needs me. And it's subtle. And priorities are real. They are real. And the pleasure reward path, and the, the frontal lobe drops below the pleasure reward pathway. What is that? Relapse. Like that. And that person's gone. You could see them in the fellowship. They're quiet. They're not talking. They're not who they are when they're close to God. They're not who they are as members of your church, vibrant, ready to go. They're not. They're lost again. And it's subtle, and it happens. There is a war 
going on between the frontal lobe and the pleasure-reward pathway. Romans 7.22, I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see, it is in my mind I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. Paul got it. He understood. You know, one, one brief um, mention about the frontal lobe in our young teens. The frontal lobe is not even developed until 23 years of age. 21 to 23. Our young teens, they can do quadratic equations. They can write essays, get into Harvard. Incredible things. And you look at them and you're like, they, they just look like adults, what, what they're capable of doing. But post something about them on Facebook. Have their, their social network dissolve somehow. And they won't have the frontal lobe, the value-based system, to deal with a charged amygdala that's like, you're a loser. Nobody's going to like you anymore. And they fall and they spiral. Post an image about a female on there, a young teen. What does that lead to? Depression, anxiety, suicide. Where do they get their frontal lobe during their teen years? Mom and dad. Discipling our kids. Teaching them about Jesus. They need us. So why do people relapse? The number one reason is relationships. Unhealthy relationships. Lack of relationships with people in recover. Bro, it's, it's okay. My, you know, my wife, she doesn't have any sexual impurity issues. She's fine. You know, I can confess to her. Everything is good. She gets it. Impossible. Bro, my, my, you know, uh, my, um, my wife, you know, she's not an alcoholic. She doesn't struggle with alcohol. You know, I can talk to her about it. You know, so she's a sober person. No way. They will never understand what's going through your brain. They will never be able to be there for you. Relationships with people in recovery. People that can get it. A lack of discipling relationships with healthy accountability. People that are willing to confront you. And priorities. And not working on sobriety daily. Relationships, where do we find them? We find them at church. We find them in mutual health groups like Celebrate Recovery. The group that I lead at, at Jacksonville Church of Christ is, is, a, is called Lighthouse Recovery, and it's very similar to Celebrate Recovery. AA, NA, OA, GA, all of them, SA. Why are these groups so effective? They have been practicing discipleship since its inception. AA is about relationships. Patients come to me and they're like, I don't like AA, it doesn't work for me. Well, what are you doing? How are you doing the program? Well, I show up and, you know, I stand and I say, hey, I'm Marcus, I'm an alcoholic. I'm like, well, do you speak? Yeah. Okay, who's in your life there? What relationships have you developed? Are you vulnerable with them? Are you transparent with them? At Celebrate Recovery, are you doing the same thing? Those groups are about relationships that are vulnerable, people in your life that you are allowing to be there. That is the power in those groups. What is that? It's discipleship. It's discipling each other. Why does that work? Well, they've understood that in AA, 
somebody comes, or celebrate recovery, somebody comes, and they start out, and they're doing pretty good. And they get to see a picture of this person who's doing well, who's vulnerable, who's transparent, who's talking, and then little by little, they don't show anymore. Or little by little, they don't check in. Or they say something weird in the group, and you approach them, and you're like, hey, bro, you know, I noticed that when you first came here, you were really doing great. You were, you know, always involved, and even the things that came out of your mouth, I mean, they were great, but I noticed you said something the other day that sounded a little off, and I tried to connect with you. You haven't texted me back, and I'm afraid that you're moving from the frontal lobe slowly to the nucleus accumbens, to the amygdala, and to the hippocampus, and you're firing all that dopamine, and you're going to relapse. They're not saying those words, but they've gotten that for years. They know that without transparent relationships, people will move from here to here. It's the same thing in our churches. If our relationships are not discipleship-based, where there is healthy, loving discipling going on, people are just going to remain lost. The purpose of a man's heart are deep waters, but it is a man of understanding that draws them out. This is reciprocated. Men of understanding, people who can be empathetic in your suffering. I've been there with you. I get it. I know it. I know the quote-unquote stinking thinking of addiction. I know what happens to the brain. Everything is possible for one who believes. Jesus, walking through the towns, his disciples come to him. There's his father there with his son. He's convulsing. Jesus goes to him. He sees the child. The father's like, he's been like this since birth. Only if you believe, he tells the Father. Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. As if telling Jesus, Jesus, the evidence of my my son's life, all I've seen is him convulse and do this. You're telling me to believe? Help me overcome my unbelief. Dr. DiCarvalho, I've destroyed my family. I've destroyed my marriage. I've been to relapse centers over and over again, sexual addiction clinics. Help me believe. How am I going to believe that I can ever change? People in the fellowship, they'll come up to me. This is the one thing I can't overcome, my purity. It's the one thing I cannot overcome. And I'm involved in this and that and all these things, but I can't. Once, twice a month, I fall. Help me believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. It's the evidence of your life. What is the only way that we'll be able to overcome? And it's discipleship. Relationships that are based on love. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Are you involved in somebody's life? Or is somebody involved in your life where that that exists? Where you know they have your best intentions in mind? That is like without a doubt that it's based on love. That it's not punitive. That it's not harsh. Discipleship, transparency, vulnerability, empathy. We see this in, 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 the, celebra- in the Celebrate Recovery, Lighthouse Recovery group we lead. This is the only way to be healed. Why does 12-step work? We talked about that. Discipleship. We talked about the purpose of a man's heart or deep waters, but it's a man of understanding that draws them out. Great quote, John Ortberg. To be fully known and fully loved is the most healing gift one human being can give to one other. 
to live in the kingdom of God. And there are other people that really don't know you. To live in the kingdom and not be transparent. In discipleship, what we teach and what is probably the most important thing is to teach the people you disciple a true appreciation of who Jesus was. For we do not empathize, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin to understand that Jesus is a God of empathy. He understands your suffering. Why? Because he had to come as a man and experience it. To have a real appreciation of Jesus. Jesus, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. He had to do this. Why? Dr. Carvalho, I just want to be happy. I just, I just want to have a happy life. You have not been called to be happy. You have been called to be free. Free of the sin that leads to death. That's what Jesus taught. That's what he was about. But they need to have a deep understanding of that. And if not, none of this stuff, the neuroscience, the brain pictures, none of it's going to work. A deep appreciation of the scriptures in your discipling relationships. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. A love, a deep love for the Bible. What am I doing here, guys? We're strengthening the frontal lobe. We are developing neuroplasticity in the front of the brain. None of this is for an impulsive amygdala. This is developing a deep love and relationship with Jesus. Transformation through the Spirit. They have to understand that they have the Spirit. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where does the Spirit of the Lord, where the Spirit of the Lord is, therefore, is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And they have to understand their purpose. Without purpose, people will just wallow. They'll get bored. They won't know what to do with their spirituality. And it leads to sin. Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. They have to have a purpose. If the ministry is addiction that you're in and you're helping people with purity, go out there. Find people who are lost, not just in your church. Teach them about Jesus. Make disciples. Help them. People that struggle with addiction, it's amazing that when they figure it out, they're like, this is the one thing that is holding me from knowing Jesus, from being free, from having a functional marriage, from being a parent, from being a functional member of society, when they find it and they go after it, they are living. And addiction, when you figure it out and isolating that thing and overcoming that, 
could be, a, it's amazing. And there are tons of people out there that just take up space. They may not have an addiction, but they're not going to go after their sin. Why? Because maybe their sin is not as salient in destroying their lives, like facing incarceration, facing a divorce, loss. Addiction, when you find it and you go after it, it could be an incredible thing for you. And Paul got it. He knew his thorn in his side. He knew because of that, he can now show the power of Christ. So walking in sobriety, the journey, there's going to be remissions and relapse. You know, the American Society of Addiction Medicine defines it. Addiction has relapse. And we have got to train when we disciple people and understand for ourselves that that's going to happen and not to be frustrated, but to walk with them. Plenty of scriptures in the Bible to help them get back up, to not just disappear and withdraw. I get it, bro. I understand. This is going to happen. You'll get there. Plenty of scriptures. The Lord helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. No temptation has overtaken you that is unusual for human beings, but God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength. Instead, along with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. (coughs) Healthy confession. Confessing together. Teaching them how to confess for forgiveness. Forgiveness from God. And personal responsibility. This is key. Sometimes when I speak, people will be like, well, this is a disease, this is an illness. Well, I can't control it. No, there is personal responsibility. The moment I tell you about hope and the frontal lobe, it's on you. You've got to go after it. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectations of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. They have to have a sober understanding of that. That's a reality. So let's have some fun really quick here. I don't know if I've gone over time. Dopamine and hedonic tone. What is dopamine? So dopamine gives you a sense of well-being, a sense of happiness, pleasure, contentment. Okay, it's set in the pleasure-reward pathway, which we also call the mesolimbic system. It enables you to achieve short-term goals. It decreases pain. It increases motivation, confidence, and reward. It reduces depression and anxiety in It increases pleasure in the current activity. Look at this incredible system God created for you to have. You look at your child, and she smiles at you. And that smile invokes a smile in you and joy. Dopamine is being pounded in your brain. And what do you do? You reciprocate that love. And that child internalizes that love, and this is what it feels like to be loved, and that's what a smile looks like. And that's a part of their healthy development. This has been designed for that. Feast your eyes on these carrots and imagine yourself eating them. Imagine yourself crunching the carrots in your mouth. They're kind of cold. There's dirt on the side here. Imagine yourself eating the green kind of stuff there and you're eating and eating. Not a lot of emotion, not a lot of feeling, right? Now imagine yourself eating that. The perfect mixture of cold Strawberry ice cream and hot fudge with cherry. Imagine yourself eating that. As I am describing that to you, and I've done this many times, I'm feeling something happening in my body. My mouth is salivating. Dopamine is being produced. Insulin is also being produced. Okay? Imagine if I put up a picture, something pornographic, and you struggled with porn. 
Imagine if I put up something there that may struggle, you, struggle, you'll struggle with alcohol. How much dopamine will be released there? Just with this item here. Just with a strawberry sundae. Why is it that when we're in restaurants, we eat a meal and we are just stuffed? We cannot eat another bite. And there she comes with the dessert tray. And they're all laid out for you so you can see them. And what do you say? Two spoons. Why? Because they know that you're going to want to eat it even though you can't eat another bite instead of giving you the menu. This is called hedonic tone, dopaminergic tone. And just as powerful as it is with this, imagine the things that you've been addicted to in the past. People who are addicted to nicotine and cigarettes, if they go out and drink at night, and they may not have, have had a cigarette in a year, two years, when do they smoke? When they go out and they drink alcohol. Why? Because alcohol will fire up that area of the brain and ramp up everything they've been addicted to and they need a cigarette. It's very well known. Acceptance and commitment therapy. As we're closing out here, I just want to share with you a type of therapy and a type of treatment that I'm very passionate about um, that really helps people and is something that we use in, in addiction, in sexual addiction, to help people fire up their frontal lobe and give them the ability to navigate through their life. What is acceptance and commitment therapy? Acceptance and commitment therapy is accepting your life, accepting your past, accepting the abuse, accepting the horrible things that have happened to you, accepting them, the pains, everything associated with them, but committing to your values, committing to what you believe in, committing to Jesus, committing to your purpose, committing to discipleship, committing to the Spirit, committing to all the things we talked about, who you want to be. I want my children to look at me and be, be like, my daddy had his problems. He did. He was vulnerable about him. He, we talked about him. But he focused on Jesus. He loved God. He loved people. He worked every day on his sobriety. How do you want people to view you? And what do you want to stand for? Accepting your past. Accepting your fears of the future. Accepting the present issues in your life. But focusing on your values. And in the face of going through difficult times, stress, anxiety, where everything is so overwhelming and you just want relief... You focus on your values. How do you go from here to here in real time? Mindfulness. <laughs> Mindfulness is getting a lot of attention in the media. People talk about it all the time. You just see it on Time magazine. You see it. But what is it? What is it in our churches? How do we look at it spiritually? Mindfulness is in real time. Accepting whatever you're feeling and not being fused to it where your next decision is based on that feeling or that emotion. And I just want to escape. I don't want to deal with this. I just, I know that if I, if I look at porn, I'll just, I'll feel better. If I have that pain pill, I'll feel better. If I take the Xanax, I'll feel better. Accepting it and not being fused, but diffusing from that feeling and looking at it for what it is, a feeling, an emotion, not a truth, not your values, not what's important to you. 
Father, I'm, you know, I'm pulling up right now and I'm looking into my house and I see my wife and the kids are all over the place and I just have this feeling of anger that she can't get the house together. I've worked all day. I, I just, I'm, so, I'm just feeling so mad. And I know this is a feeling, Father. But my values say, Lord, I want to leave my wife. I don't want to get angry when I walk in there. I, I don't want to keep records of wrong. I, I want to walk in there and lead her and guide her and help her with the situation. Father, I want to be a spiritual man. I want my kids to see me do that. I want to be a disciple. I want to be somebody who they can look at and grow and, and mimic and, and want to emulate. You go from here to there. Values motivate you. They guide you. They bring you in real time. And all those feelings of anger as you're defusing in mindfulness, you're not holding it tightly, which is fusion. You're defusing all those feelings. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Quote, unquote, Jesus, our God, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Who was he with? Brothers, disciples, relationships, vulnerability, transparency. Father, I'm feeling this feeling. Take it from me. He wanted relief. Not as your will, not as my will, but as your will. He went back and forth to him in prayer, focusing on his values. What had to happen? And when Judas came, what did he tell the disciples? Pick up your swords, let's fight. Let's run. No. He stepped into his life. That is acceptance and commitment therapy. Stepping into your life. The majority of life is suffering. The majority of life is difficulty. The majority of life is not having a happy life. The majority of life is difficult time. As we get older, people will die. Loved ones we know will die. We'll have financial distress. Things will happen to us. Our children can pass away. That is not going to go away. But how are you going to react in real time? Mindfulness. As we close out, I want to encourage you guys. I'll get a little emotional when I talk about this. But So these are my sons, Paulo and Rafa. I'm Brazilian, so they have um, Brazilian names. And... Um, I told them, I'm, you know, I'm coming up and I'm doing this talk and I really want to teach these people about something called mindfulness, pre-K and first grade. So let's go out in the back of the house and let's, uh, let's take a photo of it. And my wife starts to giggle. She starts laughing. So we walk out in the back of the house. And before I could even tell them to kind of get into kind of a pose or anything like that, they got into that pose. They already knew. Why? In their schools... Pre-K and first grade, they're already teaching them mindfulness. They already know meditation. They're teaching them how to cope with what they're going to be facing in life. Why? Mindfulness, discipleship, is not just for end-stage disease and addiction, where the wife finds thousands of images, where the mother finds her son dead in bed after overdosing on prescription pain pills. It's not just for that. It's not to teach people that when they are so far gone. It's for our kids. My children will face 
porn. They will face pain pills. They will face all those things that are out there. I know it's going to happen. When that time comes, my goal as a Christian, as a disciple, as I disciple them, is instead of facing death, they face life and choose Jesus. Thank you. Um, I, I did want to be available and open this up for some questions if anybody has questions. All the slides, these are your slides. Um, all I ask for you is that if you go to untangleaddiction.com um, and just sign up there, I will send you all these slides. Do with them whatever you will. If you want to email me, if you ever have any questions, email me. Um, I'm accessible to help you in any way with any kind of addiction-related issues. Um, so just if you can do that. So I did want to open it up for some questions. Anybody have? Yes. Do I have to bring the microphone for the questions? Or? Okay, great. great. Uh, the question is, how do you continually pour into people who, when you're overwhelmed with their addictions, how do you do that and also navigate through your own life? Is that what you said? Um, you know, really the key is, um, if you don't already have this in your, in your churches or in your life, is really to set up a system where there are other people that are involved as well. You know, um, you're not going to be able to be the one to, to help everybody. It's just impossible. Um, so what I did in Jacksonville, I approached the leadership. And, yeah, I'm a doctor and, and whatever, but there are a lot of guys that are doing this in a lot of churches um, who struggle with addiction, females as well, you know, um, that will just set up groups where they meet once a week and they hold each other accountable. They check in daily. Um, they're reading things that are out there that, that are designed for addiction. Um, if you don't actively have some type of group in your church right now, you need to start one. Because without a doubt, there are people in your church that eventually their marriages are going to fail. And they'll be so far gone, people just will want out of it. Um, there'll be addictions. People will die. In my church, people have passed away from overdosing on opioids. Um, and so I would set up some system. I would be courageous and get with the leadership and talk to them. You know, um, If they need further encouragement, have me talk to them. It's not a big deal, but this is a necessity. This is the direction that we're moving in. Great question. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, one, they, they have to have a sober understanding of what the truth is and what the scriptures say. And we can't run around that and, and, and maneuver around that. They have to know that. Where they are going to, where they, we are going to help them with shame is in your personal relationship with them where you're loving them, where you're not punitive, where you're, because that has come from other people. Um, when they see the scriptures live out in your life, for, you know, who knows what they've destroyed? Who knows the family issues? As a child, who knows how punitive it was in their home if everything was, you know, you know, significant discipline, you know? Like, there was no love. There was no positive reinforcement. But they're going to get that from you, you know? But it is important. I mean, it is important that they understand what the Scriptures say. You know, we can't just be all love. Everything is love. Everything is... No, that's not, that's not what the Scriptures say. We've got to be clear on that. But at the, you are going to love and you are going to support. When I work with people, even my children, I'll tell them, there is nothing that you are going to tell me that is going to freak me out, that is going to make me give up on you, that is going to, I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, what are we, nothing you can tell me. With Jesus, we can do it. We can do it together. You know, that's what they need to hear. Okay. I don't understand. Right. So uh, the question is, um, why is it that somebody can do something once and they become fully addicted? Her son had mentioned that he smoked dope 
once, and then his entire college career went down from there. Um, there are individuals out there that once is not enough, several times is needed. There are individuals there that once is enough. We look at them as from genetic predisposition, genetically. What does their DNA say? Are they more likely to have an addiction if they just try once? And that's, that's a possibility. What happened in his childhood, in his development? Are there things, is there trauma that maybe you as a parent don't even know about, that they have been hiding and holding on to forever? That is very common. And they have found relief in, you know, in drugs. And what he's communicated to you as the parent may not be everything. That's why it's important that when we as ministers, pastors, people um, that lead groups in our churches, when you find yourself in a place where you're like, whoa, like, this is really above me right now, to really help this individual find help and guide them with a professional, somebody who can help them navigate through all these things, answer questions, and give them hope. Mm -hmm. So the question, the first question is um, cell phones, gaming, um, do they produce dopamine in the same way as this, as, as kind of how I laid out here that can cause an addiction? It is the same pathway, yes. It's the same exact thing. Actually, for gaming, um, you know, just because the FDA doesn't approve certain medications for the addiction to gaming, um, as physicians, we use them all the time as an off-label approach to shut down that area uh, in the, uh, um, the brain reward pathway that produces all that dopamine. The medication is called naltrexone. It actually decreases the amount of dopamine that's released and that, that surge and the neuroplasticity so that you don't continue to, uh, these addictive behaviors. That's, that is a tool. Um, I'm not advocating all, all medications. Or, trust me, I am a big believer in therapy and love and discipleship. Um, but that's, that's from a neuroscience perspective, yes. Right. So what I would, the way I would approach is that from a cultural perspective, you know, our phones and social media, and I mean, there are a lot of incredible things that can come out of that. Um, and really clearly define that to them, like how we can use this for good, but also at the same time, how this also could be used for bad, pull you away from really being engaged with other people, having deeper relationships, um, you know, go through some of these slides with them, talk to them, um, because there definitely is a lot of bad that can come from that, um, as well as them just kind of cruising through the internet and finding images or finding stuff that's out there that will lead them down a, a slippery slope. So really looking at both sides. Great question. Any other questions, guys? What was the medication you just mentioned? Naltrexone. Okay, that's a great question. So the question is, what is the part of the brain where lies, where people that didn't believe in you, that tell you you're no good, um, where's, what is the part of the brain where all that is, uh, uh, stays um, kind of hidden? Um, and the answer is in the, in the nucleus accumbens and the amygdala, uh, in that brain reward pathway. You know, I do this whole talk on the evolution of critical thinking. Um, how we have evolved to be critical thinkers and negatively think. You know, we were designed to look off in the land and see, who's that stranger coming to my cave? Is he here to kill? Is he here to take our food? Is he here to combine? You know, we have been designed and evolved as protectors of the worst possible situation. And it has, as that has evolved in our modern-day society, you're no good. You're nothing. You're never going to be like your brother. Why can't you be like your brother? You're fat. You're ugly. Somebody posts something to you. All that stuff is stored in the same area as fight or flight. So how do you unlock that? Well, you strengthen your frontal lobe. What is true? No, you're beautiful. You're awesome. You're incredible. How does Jesus look at you? That's truth. And the more you go after that, you can actually battle a charged, impulsive uh, mesolimbic system, which is the brain reward pathway. Remember, 
when we talk about people that struggle with addiction in psychiatry, and it, it may sound mean, um, or even in medicine in general, we say, when is somebody who struggles with addiction, when they are deep in their addiction, when does somebody lie? And we say, the moment they're moving their lips. Because lying and addiction, living a double life, they're enmeshed. They're fused. It's a part of it. You have to lie all the lies to be able to get what your brain believes it needs to survive. Imagine if you didn't eat for two, three days and you have your children with you. You're going to lie. You're going to steal. You're going to do everything to feed them. That's how we are designed. Yes, sir. It's great. It's a great point. The question is, um, you know, when you have family members who are addicted to opioids or benzodiazepines, let me just briefly explain something. An opioid is synthetic heroin. It is heroin. When a doctor gives you um, Percocet, Lortab, whatever, it's an opioid. Okay? It's just like heroin. And heroin blocks pain powerfully. Benzodiazepines, Xanax, Valium, Clonopin, they bind to a receptor in the brain called GABA-A. There's a lot of information, but at the end of the day, GABA-A binds alcohol as well. So benzodiazepines are just powdered alcohol, the best dry gin martinis in town. When you combine the two, the side effect is to decrease your ability to breathe when you sleep. So people who are being prescribed over a long period of time by their doctors, Percocet for their back pain and an Ambien or Xanax to get to bed, and they go to bed one night, and that combination finally turns off that area of the brain, they go to bed, and they can't breathe, and they just die. Okay? This is one of the main reasons why we have 67,000 deaths. Accidental overdose. Okay? Now, the question is, how, how do I confront, how do I talk to these people in my life? Because there's a fear if I tell them, you know, you have to leave the house, they're going to die. They are going to die in your house. They are going to. I've, I've, I've treated many, many people. I mean, I oversee an addiction facility in Oregon. I oversee Arizona, Georgia, and Jacksonville. I oversee the doctors there. I go there. I talk. I see all the numbers of people who, who were released, and now they're gone. We keep track of those numbers. Why? Accidental overdose. You know, this is a reality. Codependency is a huge topic in the church. Why? Because we identify, in, we come home every single day to each other, and I've identified like my son has the problem or my wife has the problem, and without them they need me. I've got to be there for them. And you identify, and it forged your character. It almost forges your purpose, that they need you. And this person is like, I'm no good. Without, him, without them, I'm, I, I'll never be able to overcome. I need them. I need them. I'll, I promise I'll change. I promise. And it forges this thing that is living with you and has its own dynamics. And the relationship is just this codependency. And it kills people. And that's why we've designed groups like Al-Anon. I would go to Al-Anon just to start where you can understand what is codependency. How your role is actually reaffirming and reinforcing them to even do more. Al-Anon. It's a great start. Any other questions? Yes. Are you, are you talking about the neuroplasticity pathways? Yes. <coughs> uh, is, it the, is it this one here? That, okay, yeah. So, no, so that, the first one is basically the second one, the third one and the fourth one over time. They just grow. 
That's neuroplasticity. That's how the brain is connecting neurons that have memory, emotion, feeling. All of that lies in that little area that I showed you reward. It's in there. That's where all this is happening, inside the brain there. That's connected to that amygdala. That's telling you, you need this to survive. It's firing. It's when you feel that urge, when you're, when you're anxious and you're just like, wow, I'm really anxious right now or I'm feeling weird right now, like I'm, I'm worrying about something. All that is happening there in that nucleus accumbens. And when you've learned to maybe take a Xanax or um, maybe take a pain pill or look at porn or whatever, you've learned how to deal with all that anxiety from there, it fires it even more and it implants in there as a memory of how you're going to cope with your anxiety. When it goes backwards, remember, the brain is a use-it-or-lose-it system. You stop doing it, okay, and they weaken. And they go back to the original ones that you've already started. Those will never leave. They're like roots. Your brain is not going to let go of those. Why? Because it thinks it needs it to survive. That's just how we have evolved. They're like roots, weeds. You'll never get them. They'll never go away. What's that? They're still there. They just weaken. They just weaken. But let me tell you something. If you've ever seen images of, like, say, like, all the lights in Paris just turn off, boom, and then they fire them up again. Boom. And you see, boom, boom, boom. All these lights. The brain is just like that. One use again. All of that can go straight back there because they're inactive with relapse. Okay? With relapse. Any other questions? I know, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Did you have a question, sir? Just the role of shame in all of this. Yes. Guilt and shame. Yes. So with, with guilt and shame, the, the really, as far as guilt and shame... Like, where is it from a neuroscience perspective? Or? Absolutely. So where, where are the two located? So there is a worldly sorrow, right, or a worldly guilt, right? So anything that's healthy, that's going to be like, wow, this is something that's going to motivate me to change, is going to be a frontal lobe perspective. It's going to be in line with your value-based system. But all the shame that's associated with relapse is going to lie in that fight-or-flight system. It's going to make you want to escape, want relief. Great question. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That message was from the Strength and Weakness Ministries track called Cultural Issues in Disciple Making at the National Disciple Making Forum. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.